friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network at 5 p.m. on Saturdays, and of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to the catholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm joined by two of my colleagues today at the Catholic Association, our legal advisor, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer, and Ashley McGuire. Ashley and Andrea, hello, welcome to the show. It's great to be hey, here, Gracie. You know, I have to, I have to uh, tell our listeners that we are doing the show because of this crazy coronavirus quarantine that we're living through. We are in week six now, and we are doing it from three different locations, Miami, Washington, D.C., and somewhere in northern Michigan, where Ashley is joining us from her car in the rain. Right, Ashley? Yes, I apologize for the background noise, but that's the only place that um, I'm safe from my three children. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually I'm actually hiding in a closet in my house trying to be safe from the seven at home that I have. And I'm also in a closet. I know the three of us and most women and many, many, many women in America are living through the reality of being told from one day to the next that you're not only responsible for your regular work, you're also responsible for the education of your children. You know, it's very funny. Earlier today, I got calls from, um, earlier this week, I'm sorry, I got calls from teachers of my kids' parochial school and they were checking in. And they were, and I thought it was beautiful, right? They were checking in to see if I was holding it all together. And you said and no. How the kids were. Doing. <laughs> there was a bit of a confession, um, but but it, they're having a hard time too, and and it's very difficult. I we were, you know, sharing ideas on how to make this run smoother for my household, for other families. In with one of the second grade teachers, we were talking about how to get the f- first communicants to be able to celebrate their first communion before they're twenty five. <laughs> so there's there's definitely a you know this um, we're all in this together but it's definitely a heavy cloud that and, seems to be lingering on top of all of us. And Ashley, your children are younger than ours. Uh, you still have a, a toddler and a couple yeah. almost toddlers. So you're you're yeah, looking at a different reality. Yep, I'm um, uh, a little bit of a mixed bag. I, I also have a someone who should have had their first communion yesterday, so that was a little sad. Mm-hmm. But then I have a um, two-year-old who keeps us on our toes. For example, I went for a walk yesterday and came back to learn that he had taken two glasses and shattered them together over his head. Nice, <laughs> good stuff. Great. Let me guess. Did you really? Good. Let me guess. It's a boy. It's a boy, right? Yep, it's a boy. <laughs> yep, so going with the theme of sex differences that I know we'll be getting into, it's um, definitely becomes very, very apparent that boys and girls are different when you spend every waking moment with them. And um, I will say, I think it's been good for um, the the men to get, a, you know, more of a taste of what toddlers are like all day long. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're loving it. We're going to be talking about kind of going back several decades to talk about uh, issues related to the initial presentation of the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, 
later on in the show. And all of this has gotten me thinking a lot about what am I as a woman? What are the strengths that I have? What are the talents? What are the weaknesses? What are the things that I'm prone to that are unique to me, but also ones that are shared? And talking with some of my friends, mainly Gracie, there are a lot of things that are very typical of, of women that were definitely being hit with uh, kind of front and center yeah because we yeah we you know we we're we're living we're living first of all this this moment in history where we as women are expected uh, to have two full-time jobs in a sense right we're supposed to have a full-time investment in in our homes and our children which we love we love that and then we're also supposed to be very invested outside the home and and then we love that also and that's wonderful but it's sometimes I know it's very hard in general not just sometimes to to juggle both of those those desires and those and those loves which is the the loves we have at home and the loves outside the home and now it's all been jumbled together in this quarantine where we are trying to do the work outside the home and the work inside the home and the work the children were doing at school it's very difficult you know father thomas joseph white uh, a priest who is very near and dear to my heart he wrote an interesting article in first things and he had a, many different um, insights on everything about um, living in this pandemic but one that really st- struck me was how we've all been forced back to basics you know even the fact that sometimes it's hard to find bread and it's sort of like we're all back to even baking things from scratch making do when we can't find things like exercise is very simple you know we can't go to the gym we can't go to exercise classes it's sort of we're left with walking or you know maybe doing something at home but um and just really i mean i have spent more time just being sort of in a domestic role to your point andrea about what, what am i as a woman um in the last you know few weeks than i ever have in terms of time spent with my children time spent cleaning and deep cleaning and cooking because <laughs> there's no you know uh if you want food you've got to make it yourself so it and just sort of reflecting on on all of that uh, has been an interesting i think positive experience if if um if you don't fight it you know if you just sort of embrace that it is what it is right now you know i have started reading i've been starting reading um the little house series with some of my younger girls mm. and every time i read i'm like man that ma ingles is awesome <laughs> <laughs> i feel I a little bit like ma ingles though put a butter churn together i don't know if i can churn butter but i've learned to do a lot of things these last six weeks that that i didn't know that that i didn't know how to do <laughs> Until I tried to go out and do them. In many ways, those are the empowering moments, I guess, if we would like to use the language of the day. There's a lot that we can do that we never knew we could do because we never were asked to. Yeah, and, and you know what? And that reminds me. Keep our senses. So true, and that reminds me why that about our our guest coming up because we're going to be talking to the daughter of a woman who who went out from her home and changed the world uh, with her six children in tow, which is wonderful, right? That's what that's what we're all hoping to do. Joining us now, we have Anne Schlafly Corey with us, daughter to the one and only Phyllis Schlafly, and she's going to discuss with us a new miniseries that is airing on Hulu. Uh, me and Andrea and Ashley have watched the first four episodes through, and, and we're actually really enjoying it, I think, the four of us. And we're also really looking forward to talking to Anne, and Anne, we're delighted to ha- have us with you today. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure being with you all. I have to tell you, I'm watching this show of this about this powerhouse of a woman that was your mother and I 
I just have to take off my hat to her. I'm watching it and I'm thinking, I want to be Phyllis when I grow up, but I'm probably already older than when she started doing doing her amazing things. Well, I'm glad you're getting that reaction. I, I would say other people have had a mixed reaction because they... Uh, they portray her, they try to be unflattering in a lot of their portrayal of her because she was not power mad. And she she did what she did because of the courage of her convictions and her deep faith, but not because she was out to grab power. And about Phyllis, uh, I'm, I'm really, I'm watching it and I'm, and I'm admiring her so much. Um, maybe that's not what the filmmakers intended, uh, but I'm seeing that she was a woman who, who stepped into the breach uh, uh, in front, yes. uh, you know, at, at a moment when our country needed real leadership, uh, she came from from far from the from the center of power, from Washington, and and she confronted this problem that was uh, staring down at all of us, and that was going to ruin a lot of futures, which was the Equal Rights Amendment. So before we start talking about the miniseries, if you don't mind, um, Anne, maybe you could tell us about the. Equal Rights Amendment. For our listeners that might not know that much about it or maybe um, maybe know something about it but don't understand exactly how important it, it was that, that your mother was able to defeat it. It was very important and it was a huge issue in the 1970s. And 50 years later, it's hard to remember or, uh, or understand why this was such so hotly debated. But you're right that it is important to understand and be glad that it was defeated. The Equal Rights Amendment was a, con- was a proposed constitutional amendment to our Constitution. And to amend the Constitution requires a supermajority of Congress and a supermajority of the states. And in 1972, there was the idea that equality of rights is what everybody wants. And it was only in terms of reading the language and seeing the pernicious effects of what it would do to American society did people understand that ERA would harm the very people it said it would help. And it was the harms that were so important to be uh, to be talked about in the 1970s. So ERA would not put women in the Constitution. It would put sex in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And sex has a lot of meanings. And um, this would create a completely sex-neutral society. And if we were to ever do that, it would harm women because women are vulnerable and particularly in, in certain situations where there are biological differences between men and women and it's the women who would get harmed in a sex-neutral society. And this is Ashley. Thank you so much for being with us. And I, what you're saying resonates so deeply with me. I, I wrote a book, and that was basically the thesis of my book. And, you know, I've been watching the miniseries, too, and, and being reminded of the fact that uh, this is a battle that women have been fighting for decades. You know, your, your mother was sort of its first general. Um, but it's sort of amazing to think that we're here decades later and fighting the same fight. And I'm, you know, still having to articulate the fact that treating men and women as if they were identical ultimately hurts women. And one thing that I'm struck by in the show, and I think is a good reminder for society, you know, regardless of the reaction to the show, is that your mom was right. I mean, the things that she 
predicted would happen are all bearing coming to bear right now. And one of the things I was most struck by, and maybe even when they set out to start producing this show, they didn't realize how quickly this would accelerate. But for example, the issue of drafting women. I have a chapter about that in my book. I, I testified before the commission that just, I think this issue kind of slipped through the cracks because of the, the crisis in this country right now. But the Congress formed a commission that just recommended that women be drafted for military service. Insane. So, you know. And, and Ashley, it's good for you to bring this up because this was the key issue in the 1970s because we were fighting a war where the draft was in effect. And so it was very mm-hmm. real to uh, to all Americans, the idea of the draft and military combat. Um, but And today, when I talk about it, people say, oh, well, women are in the military. But they, but, and we have a volunteer military today, but if we were ever to be in a crisis and in a war, the draft could be in instituted women um congress would have the decision to um draft women if they wanted to and as you're right that commission has recommended it but congress would have to approve that if era were in the constitution it would not be up to congress it Mm. would be required and one of the things is although we have a volunteer military today you are not a volunteer when you are a member of the military you go where you're told to go and if you're ordered to the combat front lines you don't get a choice to opt out you have to go to the combat back front lines and no less a person than justice ruth bader ginsburg you know safe in her seat on the supreme court has said that equality means equal representation of men and women on the combat front lines and this is andrea and i'm the lawyer of the group and and before joining the catholic association and uh, i took a brief stint to focus on my family but even before that i worked at the department of justice's civil rights division And I was thinking about all the federal laws and state laws and local laws that do protect uh, women against unfair sex discrimination. And as we all know, that uh, those laws, Title VII... How about the uh, anti-discrimination law? How can you have a distinction? If you have no distinction on the basis of sex, how can you protect pregnant women from Mm. anti-discrimination? So true. Well, and one thing that I was concerned about in all of this is, you know, the... The desire to have unfettered abortion always seems to find its way into everything. And we're seeing that right now um, in dealing with the pandemic and um, relief uh, efforts for that. But but in the ERA, abortion, even in the miniseries, is, is really front and center. What was your mom, was she concerned about abortion at the time? This was just when Roe was either shortly before um, Roe came down or shortly after it came down. And where do, where do you think we are now with regard to um, unfettered abortion and using this notion of equality to, to uh, prevent any kind of reasonable regulation? Certainly, my mother used the abortion argument as one of the keys on ERA, that she saw that they were in that they were linked together. 
Uh, and the miniseries does, it makes no bones about the importance of abortion for for the, the leftist feminists. But the today, the reason why we're talking about the Equal Rights Amendment today and the reason why it has been reintroduced um, again is abortion. There is no other reason for bringing it back today. Uh, and it, the proponents of abortion are very concerned that the current Supreme Court will chip away at Roe v. Wade and they want an ERA in the Constitution today in order to secure abortion rights. Well, well it might even make it a even the higher right than the right that's outlined in the Roe decision and the Casey decision, right? It would almost it absolutely foreclose any kind of regulation. Because, and what we have are the, are the two state Supreme Courts in Connecticut and New Mexico, which both said that those state ERAs with language similar to the national ERA requires taxpayer funded of abortion. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. Radio. You know, I was watching the the um, this documentary, and she mentioned a couple times during the documentary that I the, the episodes that I've seen about unisex bathrooms, and I see the the people are reacting to her like, "Are you crazy, unisex bathrooms?" And it's you know, almost I, like your mom gotta, was some sort gotta, of prophet. She was some sort of prophet who was looking into the future on her right. on her glass ball. But I have to correct you. This show is not a documentary. It is fiction. It is a dramatization. Oh. They have made up characters. They have made up dialogue. They have made up scenes. This is a Hollywood version of what Phyllis Schlafly is. It is not the true Phyllis Schlafly. So there's there's a great deal of fiction in this show. But as for my as for Phyllis Schlafly being pressured she absolutely was because mm-hmm. she understood that you can't if you if you say there can be no distinction on the basis of sex that covers all societal norms that we have and it made me think when I was when I was watching it and of course I read up on her too and, and I've seen some of her I watched her appearance on Phil Donahue the actual one <laughs> that she was so fabulous in and and I watched a speech that she gave um, sometime in the late 70s and uh, well anyway I'm, I'm really impressed with your mom but it, I was thinking that the that now you know looking back now we see that the trend that transgender ideology and feminism has gained so much ground in our society it's really reshaped the way we interact in so many negative ways and that if the ERA had passed and your mom hadn't defeated it um, then it would have been that but on steroids and it would have happened much faster much mm-hmm. harder and our and our country and our culture would have suffered much more than it has Agreed. There's no doubt about it. And in the 1970s, nobody thought about transgender back then. Mm-hmm. But all, all it was just, they thought sex referred to biological sex. And now we know that sex has so many different definitions that we didn't consider before. Mm-hmm. And do you think that if the ERA has actually become something that, that people are reconsidering again today, that this new creep of gender ideology is going to make it um, the notion of sex basically detached from biological sex, even more detached from, let's say, an initial desire to recognize the equal dignity of women? 
Well, I think it does uh, detract from it. And I, I urge people not to use the word gender, but to use the word sex. I agree with you. The biological differences between men and women are the ones we should recognize and celebrate. And we should never pretend that they don't exist. Because when that happens, it is the vulnerable girls and women who are affected. And I wanted just to ask real quick, um, you mentioned Hollywood, uh, it's Hollywood fiction, right? And we're all uh, accustomed to Hollywood taking liberties on people's lives, Um, sometimes elevating them beyond what their character was, or in many cases, not including all the wonderful character traits that they have. There's something that you've written about, and, and I think for all of our listeners, we're interested in your mom was a faithful Catholic, and she practiced Catholic norms like a daily rosary. Uh, I think she was accurately portrayed as a beautiful and elegant and always dignified dressed woman. What are the other things except, that you think? Except for the first scene where they put her in a bikini, and I trust yeah, me. Yes. I wasn't no, even allowed to wear a bikini. <laughs> that struck me. I don't know. I didn't know your mother, Anne, but that struck me as that had to be a lie. I can't imagine your mother in a bikini on a stage. <laughs> no, no, no. Not even in our backyard pool. <laughs> what else do you think was missing or is missing? Uh, because you were there and you saw her and, and I, I think you you assumed a lot of those wonderful traits. You seem to me a, a lovely person. Um, what are the things that people need to remember and how did that inform what she was doing? I think you, you started off with the faith, which was critical. And then the second piece is her marriage. My mother had a beautiful, loving marriage. It's portrayed in this show as contentious. But it, my father, and I think the show quite defames my father, but my father fully supported my mother um, intellectually, philosophically, uh, f- uh, religiously, emotionally, financially. There was, they were two peas in a pod. And this idea that there was contention or that she was bargaining with him or that he was an insensitive brute towards her, that, that, the, what the, the harmfulness of that image is to put a lie, is to try to demean their marriage. Their marriage was in the Catholic Church and fully faithful to the church because they recognized that that was the, the basis of their marriage and they lived their marriage within those guidelines of, of being faithful to Christ. And I, I had a conversation about this with my own husband because we agreed that it seemed kind of like, you know, Hollywood has to find something to sort of tarnish her image. It's so hard because her image, it is, it sort of speaks for itself, um, both her legacy and sort of her, you know, this glamour she was known for. And so that almost comes off, I think, as contrived because it just seems so implausible that a woman who accomplished so much and had what seemed to so many to be such a happy marriage and a happy family would been secretly harboring this dark and contentious side to things. And, and I, Well, if I may comment on that, I think it's how Hollywood and the leftists view what marriages must be. Because if you yes, realize right. in this True, show, true. There is no good man. 
every man as is portrayed as a brute, a beast, a betrayer, or just garbage. There is not a single man in mm-hmm. this show who doesn't who doesn't harm or betray um, the women in the show. And so, if you are writing this, as I know the producers did, from a leftist point of view. They view men as garbage. Even if they're men. That's a (laughs) rule. Even if they're men themselves. Yes. But didn't you notice, yes. I, I mean, I was I was gratified by the fact that the uh, feminists were portrayed as backbiting and um, ugly to each other, vulgar. I was I was gratified by that, that they didn't do the same thing to to our side. Well, but what they did do to, to our side was flatten the portrayal of the supporters of my mother. My mother's supporters were they they were fully engaged with the issues. Um, this show treats them as if they are hayseed racists. Um, mm, I and saw that. Yeah. Could be further from the truth. They were intelligent women who who learned the issues and saw that what they needed to do to protect their family and their communities was so important to them. And it's true that these were women who had not previously been involved in politics. They got excited and energized by the leadership of my mother, but they set up their own organizations within their states. They lobbied their state legislatures. I mean, they, I mean, they, the producers could have profiled just as many women on the right side as the left side mm. with full stories instead of doing these flat portrayals uh, and fiction. Characters. I see. That's true. You know, and and there was one thing that that I saw in in the miniseries, but I also read and uh, just doing research on your mom. And I think it's worth highlighting, and it's a good um, tip for any of us that are trying to convince people to truth. Your mom carried her position. Not only was she unwilling to waver on what she knew was true, but she also dealt uh, with a, a level of of elegance and never. Um, anger towards her opponents or the people who disagreed with her, even when they were, you know, downright ugly towards her. It's very important to always have a smile on your face because honey catches more vinegar. I mean, honey catches more flies than vinegar. <laughs> Absolutely. You, uh, you want to show yourself the best way. But her demeanor and her elegance, you know, now that we're all sheltering, you know, where our commute is from our bedroom to our couch, a lot of people <laughs> have, you know, started to make this a, a sloppiness in their lives. I, my mother never wore pajamas downstairs. She, you know, on Saturday morning, she dressed as uh, to go to the grocery store as if she was going to be on the evening news interviewed. I mean, she always was put together. And if you carry yourself that way, it's easier than, I think, to keep your language right, your attitude right, because you're then, you're on. You're not sloppy. And if you allow yourself sloppiness in some areas of your life, it creeps into others. And That's a great point. You know, and um, I'm sure and that as a daughter of watching a, a very two-dimensional portrayal of a woman like your mother and the people around her and including her family, it must be very hurtful to watch the, the producers, the writers, who are clearly not sympathetic with people, women like us. They're sympathetic with a whole other group of women. Mess up. But I have to tell you also, uh, me watching it from just a completely un, uh, outside perspective, I'm very impressed with your mother. And I really think that uh, that you must be so proud to have a woman like that to to follow in her footsteps 
It's a wonderful opportunity because it allows people to learn about this tremendous life story and gives me the opportunity to meet you all and talk to you all with it about it. <laughs> and I can assure you that so not lovely. only us, but our listeners are going to be wanting to watch more uh, real videos of your mother and uh, read up more about her and of her uh, her wonderful work. So thank you so much uh, for being with us. It was a pleasure. Coming up next after the break, we'll be talking to Lori Windham from the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. Stay Stay tuned to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences, the radio show of the Catholic Association. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today I'm joined by my colleagues, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer and Ashley McGuire. We just finished a lively conversation with Anne Schlafly, Corey, on her mother's legacy and the new show on Hulu about the ERA. And now we have Lori Windham, Senior Counsel at the Beckett Fund, who's agreed to talk to us about religious freedom and some other really courageous women, the Little Sisters of the Poor. Thanks for joining us, Lori. Thanks so much for having me on. It's always wonderful to talk to you. Lori, we have lots of things we want to hear from you about, um, especially the high-profile cases your firm is representing. Uh, but first, we thought we could ask you a little bit about the history of Beckett and its mission. Absolutely. So Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty defends religious freedom for people of all faiths. Uh, we've been doing that for 25 years now. Our founder, Seamus Hassan, had a vision to start a law firm that would defend religious freedom, defend it as a fundamental human right, and do it for people of all faiths. Nobody else was doing that, and so uh, he had the vision, he started Beckett, and over the years it has grown into the premier firm defending religious freedom. Uh, we have an, a 5-0 record at the Supreme Court. We're trying to uh, make that 8-0 by the end of the year. And uh, I'm just thrilled to be able to be a part of this wonderful organization and a part of the work that they're doing defending our religious liberty. Lori, this is Ashley. We, um, we've we had the privilege of working together in the past at the Beckett Fund, and uh, it was actually my first job out of college. And, you know, when I first interviewed with Seamus, I didn't know at the time, I think so many people, um, you know, didn't realize how much foresight he had and really how he's sort of come to be seen as the godfather of the modern modern day religious freedom movement, especially his unique vision of religious liberty for all people and sort of the mutually reinforcing aspect of all faiths defending each other's rights. But, you know, everybody I think who's worked with Seamus also has sort of a funny story. <laughs> and mine was interviewing him or interviewing with him, 21 years old, and um, behind him he had these giant shark jaws. Um, so I don't, I think most people don't know he's an avid hunter um, and just sort of sitting there interviewing with him and talking about religious freedom, but a little bit distracted by the giant shark jaws of a, of a shark that he himself shot despite no. um, having Parkinson's. Um, Lori, what are some of the anecdotes that you're you're, you're fond of? <laughs> I know what the shark jaws look like, and uh, true. I just remember being, you know, 
a young woman coming to Washington, D.C. and and starting out and uh, coming to Beckett and just being really, you know, in awe of what he was doing and the authority with which he did it. Um, but I had to laugh with your, you know, your story of the shark jaws. Um, he actually has, we had a, um, a Beckett event at one point and we visited his home and on the stairs going downstairs, he actually had a giant stuffed bear. This was not a stuffed animal. This was, again, a bear that he had shot <laughs> and was there going down the stairs in his home. It would give you quite a fright when you first caught that out of the corner of your eye. You know, that's in- incredible, Lori. We are very close friends with Mary Hassan, who's the beloved wife of Seamus, and she loves Seamus so much. And I just had this incredible visual of, of Mary shooting a bear as well. <laughs> but um, I wanted to talk uh, about something that you mentioned, and and I find it very important. You men- uh, said that Beckett promotes itself as a defender of religious freedom, and you say from A to Z, Anglican to Zoroastrian, which I need to learn more about Zoroastrian. But um, it seems like more and more cases are coming up with clashes between the government and Catholic teaching and Catholic-run organizations, uh, particularly on human sexuality and the family. And one of the most well-known of these clashes we mentioned before is the case involving the Little Sisters of the Poor. What's the latest in their effort to continue to care for the elderly poor and live Catholic teaching fully? Well, you know, the Little Sisters of the Poor have been fighting this fight for, my goodness, I think it's seven years now. I can't believe it's been going on that long. Uh, and we are headed back to the Supreme Court for what we will, we hope will be the last time on May 6th. And, you know, I know as many of your listeners are familiar with the background here, this is uh, the HHS contraception mandate. Uh, where the, uh, under Obamacare, it was required nationwide for the first time that all health care plans would include coverage uh, for con- contraceptives and abortifacients, including the week after pill. This is a nationwide mandate that went into effect, and the mandate exempted churches but didn't exempt the Little Sisters of the Poor. Uh, and we've made the common sense point since the beginning that the government has a lot of way to get people contraceptives. It doesn't need to involve nuns in doing it. Um, but con- Nonsense did not rule the day. And so this uh, issue went before the Supreme Court in 2014 in the Hobby Lobby case, uh, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, where uh, the Supreme Court protected family business owners from having to perform provide abortifacients in their uh, business health care plan. Uh, and then it went back to the Supreme Court in 2016 with the Little Sisters of the Poor. Um, you would think that after losing to Hobby Lobby, the federal government would think, you know, I don't think I want to take on the Little Sisters of the Poor next. But that was exactly <laughs> what they did. And and so they, they decided that they were going to exempt a lot of people, but not exempt the Little Sisters of the Poor and others who were out there doing crucial work to serve those in need. I should say the Little Sisters dedicate their lives to serving the elderly poor. They run uh, nursing homes and care facilities for those who are unable to be on their own and don't have the means uh, to get help. And if you've ever been to one of their homes, it's just amazing to walk in the door and to uh, be greeted by the sisters and to just see the love and the care that is apparent in everything they do is much nicer than any nursing home I have ever set foot in. It's especially touching to see the videos. We've been hearing a lot these days about, um, you know, with everything going on with COVID-19 and terrible stories about people 
dying alone, separated from families. And the little sisters' homes, it is a rule, nobody dies alone. The sisters will go and sit with someone and hold their hands and pray with them and sing with them when the end comes. It's such a powerful testament to who they are and such a powerful testament to their commitment to life and their commitment to walking with people. Lori, the, the little sisters are definitely very sympathetic people, and I would be very scared to be prosecuting them. I'd hate the optics of being a prosecutor of, of women like the little sisters. What do you answer when people say, but nobody's asking the little sisters to take contraception. All they're asking the little sisters to do is to, to sign on the dotted line and, and allow their separate insurance company that they don't run, that they don't really administer, to give contraception to their employees without a copay. What's your answer to that? What the government is asking the Little Sisters to do is to sign the authorization and turn over their plan that they run. It's actually administered by Christian Brothers, which provides church plans for Catholic entities, and actually require Christian Brothers uh, on the Little Sisters' plan to provide contraceptives and abortifacients as part of that plan. And that's uh, they've said that's something that we in good conscience cannot do. We'd step aside if the government had its complaint and people want to go and obtain these things independently they can do that but that's not what's happening here the government is saying that's not enough we need you to sign this form to give us the authorization to go in to use your plan to provide these contraceptives Lori, I I can't I'm I can't believe how long this has gone on either. And I was trying to remember I, I wrote an article about the attorney generals who are still bullying the little sisters. I believe it's the AG of Pennsylvania, California, um, and then they had a few others sign on. But really, the AG of Pennsylvania and California sort of leading the charge, you know, along with allies in Congress like Nancy Pelosi. And it's sort of shocking to me because they're in states like Pennsylvania. Which which are very Catholic states, either that or they themselves are Catholic. And it's sort of, you know, I mean, it doesn't really beg the question. It sort of answers the question, do they care more about sort of um, sexual ideology than they do religious freedom? But I, I still sort of wonder what what the motivation is. What are they getting out of this other than maybe scoring political points with with their base? I, that's a great question, and that's the best answer that, that I have uh, been able to think of. You know, what's especially galling about this is the way these cases came up is that the Trump administration did the right thing. After all these years of litigation, they said, you know what, we're going to exempt the Little Sisters of the Poor. We're going to exempt people with sincere religious objections to providing this coverage and find other ways for women to be able to access this uh, contraceptive if that's what they want to do. And so they made that exemption before it had even been uh, published in the Federal Register. Lawsuits were filed. And so you have state AGs who are coming in and suing and saying that the federal government doesn't even have the power to allow the Little Sisters to be exempt, that they must require them to provide this. And so it's just a stunning argument to me. You know, this is no longer the federal government saying we have the power to do this. This is state governments coming in and saying you don't have the power to do anything else. You don't have the authority to accommodate religious freedom. And that's a really breathtaking argument they're making and would be a really frightening ruling if they were to succeed. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. We've been talking to Lori Windham from the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty about the 
continuing case of the little sisters of the poor. Now, Lori, I know that you don't have a crystal ball, but how do you see your chances? Uh, how do you see the little sister chances before the Supreme Court? Uh, we're optimistic. Back in 2016, the, the Supreme Court unanimously told the government, there's a better way here. Go find a better way to do this. And that's exactly what the government did. And now they're back before the Supreme Court. And again, not on just this question of can we do this? Can we exempt the little sisters? But on an argument that it's not even permissible for them to protect religious freedom. And I just can't see the Supreme Court saying that it is unlawful for the federal government to do something that is called within the best of our traditions, which is to accommodate religious exercise. Now, Lori, abortion and, and the provision of contraception isn't the only thing being held in greater esteem than religious freedom, right, Lori? A new definition of marriage is also the source of some very difficult clashes in the courts, and you're the lead attorney on one of my favorite cases that the Supreme Court is going to be hearing this coming term involving uh, the foster care program run by Philadelphia's Catholic Social Services. Tell our listeners a little bit more about this, what I think is a very, very important case, not just because it involves needy kids, but because it sets out the standard about religious uh, freedom and the contribution of faith-based groups into the public square. Uh, well, that's incredibly well said, and that is what we're dealing with here. Um, Philadelphia attempted to become, I forget if it was the sixth or eighth city around the country, to completely exclude Catholic social services from its foster care system. The Archdiocese of Philadelphia has been providing care for uh, orphaned and at-risk children for more than a century. Uh, they provide foster care and find homes for children who are have to be separated from their parents, often for abuse and neglect. They've been doing this successfully for decades. Two years ago, after a news article about marriage, the city of Philadelphia decided it was no longer going to allow Catholic Social Services to participate in its foster care program, meaning that Catholic Social Services would not be able to provide foster care for Philadelphia children at all. The, what the, the city of Philadelphia was angry about was they saw a newspaper article where Catholic Social Services had affirmed its longstanding policy uh, that it could not provide a written certification approving of a marriage relationship uh, that was contrary to its faith, which is what it would have to do to certify uh, foster homes by unmarried or same-sex couples. We came in to defend Catholic Social Services and uh, asked for a court order to be able to uh, reopen and allow children to continue to be placed in loving homes. And that case has now gone all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is looking at this case, looking at the question of whether Philadelphia violated the Free Exercise Clause uh, when it targeted and penalized Catholic Social Services. And it's also looking at the bigger question of what does the Free Exercise Clause protect? What does it mean? And should the court go back and revisit an older case, Employment Division v. Smith, that really cut back on free exercise protections? And so this stands to be a case that's really important for the future of Catholic and other religious foster and adoption agencies across the country, and also important for the future of the free exercise clause. Uh, Lori, going back to the sort of the the last point about optics and motivation, you know, there's something really similar in this case in that we have this foster care crisis in the country right now. These agencies are already bursting at the seams. The states can't handle the number of, you have countless children who are actually graduating out of the foster care system without ever even being placed into a family. Um, and this has been strained further by the opioid crisis. And now I'm, I'm even reading that the coronavirus situation is also 
also straining um, the system. And it sort of, again, begs the question of, you know, what are the priorities and the motivations of those who are willing to shut down the agencies and institutions that are doing the very best work to um, alleviate those strains and, and do the work that the government can't do? Uh, I think that's really well said. And, you know, what was staggering here is you had a newspaper article, um, which uh, the article, by the way, was about another agency that had a policy has since changed its policy on same-sex couples. They asked a question to Catholic Social Services. They gave an answer, and that was all it took. And then you had the city council passing a resolution on this, the mayor condemning them, uh, the agent, the head of the agency that runs foster care um, investigating the religious agencies in the city, and within days cutting off foster care placements to Catholic Social Services. And this came at a time when the city had just asked days earlier for 300 new foster families to be able to meet the need that they have. And it's just staggering to me that they continue to push this fight after two years when there are beds empty and there are loving homes that are open, they're still refusing to allow children to be placed in the homes of families just because those families work with Catholic Social Services. Uh, Lori, that's um, you know this is uh, this is a very compelling uh, thing that the thought that the government would want to close down foster care agencies just because they're faith based and don't, can't agree with all the you know all the current ideas um, that the government that those governments want to push. But another thing that concerns uh, a lot of people is the gender ideology and the way it's changing. It's reshaping our culture and and the way we interact. And I know there are a few cases before this. There are going to be cases before the Supreme court very soon that deal with the definition of sex under the law. Do you think that this is going to be uh, in the in the near future, the, the new wave of religious freedom uh, violations that the courts uh, are going to have to resolve? Uh, it's a really interesting issue, and we are already seeing these cases start to happen. You, know, you mentioned the, the Title VII cases before the Supreme Court right now. They're trying to decide if the word sex in Title VII means sexual orientation and gender identity, which would uh, impact employment in other areas. Um, there's also a case that uh, we've been working on down in Texas for a couple of years, uh, even before these cases hit the Supreme Court, the Obama administration had written some rules that changed the meaning of sex to include sexual orientation and gender identity and applied those to doctors. Uh, and so doctors and hospitals could be in trouble if they were unwilling um, to do something like provide puberty-blocking hormones for children uh, who were wanting to undergo a gender transition. And so the expansion in the areas that that can get into can be really troubling. And I think especially if the, uh, if the Supreme Court does adopt a new definition of sex in Title VII, uh, we are going to see more and more cases. Lori, I know that um, you guys are furiously preparing for historic oral arguments in the Little Sisters of the Poor case. It's going to be held telephonically and writing briefs in the, the merits briefs in the Philadelphia case. Know that all of us, and I'm sure all of our listeners, are going to be praying for you to be able to do that, to be able to continue to advance the cause of religious freedom, promote truth, and uh, allow these wonderful groups and institutions to be able to continue to serve with such love, such care, and unburdened by any kind of browbeating from ideological uh, opponents. Well, thank you so much, and thank you so much for all the work you have been doing to shine a spotlight on these issues and to support these cases in court. 
Well, yeah, thank you. Well, you know what, Laurie, we, we really believe that with Beckett uh, there, uh, standing up for religious liberty at the Supreme Court, that we, we couldn't be in better hands. Uh, America could not be in better hands, especially such an important right that we have as Americans that so much of the world doesn't share, which is the right to religious liberty. So thank you so much, Laurie, for your time. And we really wish you the best and lots of successes. Well, thank you so much. And thank to all of you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. The fourth Sunday of Easter each year is called Good Shepherd Sunday because the Church focuses on the 10th chapter of the Gospel of St. John, in which Jesus reveals the relationship he has with each of his faithful followers. Jesus says about himself, I am the Good Shepherd. And we, his faithful followers, reply, The Lord is my Shepherd. I want, I lack for nothing. We mark this truth in the heart, the midpoint of the Easter season each year, because it's the heart of our Easter joy. With the risen Lord Jesus as our shepherd, we truly have it all. That's something we need to focus on in the midst of a consumer society in which we're bombarded with advertisements that pretend that we'll only be happy if we obtain something they're selling, that will be fulfilled only if we have money and houses, fame and fortune, power and position. We recognize that for us to have life and have it in abundance, we need the Good Shepherd's love and grace. This quiet period through the coronavirus has, ha has made us ever more aware of that. We confess that what Jesus provides is far more fundamental to happiness and absolutely essential to eternal felicity with him in the eternal sheepfold. Throughout the Good Shepherd discourse Jesus gives us, he reveals that he does for us three things. For us to be good sheep of the Good Shepherd, we need to allow him to shepherd us in these three ways. First, the Good Shepherd feeds his flock. He prepares a table for us. He feeds us in every way, materially, giving us each day our daily bread. He feeds our souls with his word. For not on bread alone does man live, but on every word that comes from God's mouth. He feeds us ultimately on his own body and blood in the Eucharist, the food of everlasting life. Good sheep are not only grateful for this threefold nutrition, but deeply hunger for it with gratitude. Second, the good shepherd guides his flock. Jesus leads us in right paths for his namesake. He leads us besides refreshing waters of baptism. He guides us toward the verdant pastures of heaven. He tells us he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He goes ahead of them and they follow him. Jesus takes each of us personally to himself, but then he leads us on a journey, a true adventure. That pilgrimage is what life is about. He doesn't merely tell us about this life. He doesn't just indicate to us where we need to go. But he leads us by example. To be his disciple means to follow where he leads. St. Peter talks about this when he says, Christ left you an example so that you should follow in his footsteps. Good sheep do. Third, Jesus the Good Shepherd protects his flock. 
Jesus tells us very clearly that there are thieves and marauders who are seeking to fleece, milk, kill, cook, and consume us. Against those who come only to steal and kill and destroy, Jesus sets himself as our protection, as the gate to the sheepfold, so that essentially in order to get to us, they first need to go through him. To protect us, not only was he willing to die for us, but in fact did die for us. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, he tells us. No one takes my life from me, I freely lay it down. That is why we can act on his words, be not afraid, because he himself will protect us from everything that can eternally harm us, provided that we stay in his fold. Thus we can say with confidence and trust as we pray in the psalm, even though I walk in the darkest valley, and some of us have been in that dark valley, many have been in it through the coronavirus, I fear no evil, for he is at my side with his rod and his staff to comfort me. Jesus continues to feed, guide, and protect us, but does it for the most part by calling some of his sheep and making them effective shepherds. He takes disciples and makes them apostles and guardians. He wants to do that with each of us. If we're good sheep, then he wants us to become, in our own circumstance, a good shepherd of others, someone who helps Jesus feed, guide, and protect others in his name. You see that dramatic transformation in Peter after the resurrection, when Jesus asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And three times Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then he says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Peter's love for Jesus would be shown in the way that he shepherds others that the Lord gives to his shepherdly heart. It's the same way for parents. It's the same way for teachers. But for the last 57 years, the church has celebrated on Good Shepherd Sunday, the World Day of Prayer for Priestly Vocations. It's on this day that we recognize the role of priests in order to be shepherds after the heart of the Good Shepherd. Priests are the Good Shepherd's indispensable instruments to feed his flock with himself in the Holy Eucharist, but they also nourish us with his Holy Word and the teaching of the Church. Priests guide Jesus' flock one-on-one in the ministry of mercy and the confessional, in spiritual erection and counseling, and guide the entire flock in their work of pastors, the Latin word for shepherd. They also seek to protect the flock of Christ from what Jesus calls in the Gospel thieves and marauders, those who would seek to harm them. This involves not just a defense from the devil, his promises and evil works, but also all those earthly gurus who try to lead people from Jesus in the narrow path that leads to life. The priesthood is so important because through it, Jesus continues to shepherd us with love. As we prepare for the World Day of Prayer for priestly vocations, we thank Jesus for the way that he has fed and tended us as his lambs and sheep throughout our life, by those who love Christ enough to leave a family of their own, money and possession, in their own will, in order to serve us in chastity, poverty of spirit, and obedience. We pray in a particular way that God may hear our prayers and raise up many such shepherds from among the boys of our families and our parish family. Jesus is the good shepherd who will never leave his flock untended. He continues to feed, lead, and protect us. He continues to nourish, guide, and defend us through the priests he makes pastors after his own heart. So we prepare to listen to the Good Shepherd's voice speaking to us in Sunday's Gospel. We ask him to make us extremely grateful for the table he has prepared for us and for the priesthood that uniquely makes this great banquet of life possible. We ask him to make us ever more attentive to his voice speaking to us through the church so that we might know how to follow him through his priests all the way 
to the verdant pastures of heaven. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. And that brings us to the close of our show, friends. Catch us every Saturday at 5 p.m. on your EWTN local affiliate or on Sirius Channel 130. You can also listen to this show as a podcast at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or just go directly to wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. We hope we've brought you some happiness or comfort in this difficult time. As always, you go with our prayers. 